Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And we're very happy to have Peter Cole join us here today. Uh, Peter is a professor of history at Western Illinois University. He's written uh, lots of things, uh, a book um, called Wobblies on the Waterfront, Interracial Unionism and Progressive Era Philadelphia. But most recently, just in 2018, uh, a great book that I'm excited to talk about, Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a comparative study, as you'll see, of, of South African uh, dock workers and dock workers and other uh, longshoremen in the San Francisco Bay Area. So welcome, Peter. Really happy to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and I think it's especially, as people might not know from uh, the intro, especially apt for Black History Month. And I don't know how you feel about Black History Month as kind of a way to raise awareness about uh, social justice. We can, we can ask you about that as well. But uh, nonetheless, very excited to talk about race and, and economic uh, inequality and social justice issues with you. Of course, I am too. You might just say that uh, every month could be Black History yes. Month, right? But we'll take what we can get. Some joke is <laughs> it's the shortest month of the year, right? Oh, 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 that is uh, that's an unfortunately apt uh, way to, to show how uh, we treat racial minorities in this country, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yes. But uh, we'll try to do justice uh, in the conversation to their struggles. Uh, it, this uh, that Yeah, that's very sad. Um, I'd also, you know, I, I hadn't, um, you, you know, read that that much of this like type of stuff before, but uh, I did the Peace Corps in South Africa in 2009 to 2011, so I'm always very interested to to, to read about South Africa stuff, um, and you know how that uh, I feel like the South Africa and the United States are very very similar in a lot of ways, and this you know this is pretty telling how they sort of like. Uh, that history intersects with the, with, with each other. Yes. So maybe Peter, uh, to lead us into your, your work, what, um, what got you interested as a historian initially in, uh, in this type of activism, this type of, was it the, the union, uh, interest that led you to dock workers? Was it, um, was it race? So how, how did your, uh, intellectual kind of journey lead you to, to these works? Well, the short version is that when I thought about in the 1990s how people have power and where people have power, it came to me, which has occurred to many people before, namely that workers have power. So if ordinary people have power, then we might have our most power in the workplace. So as an American who also was interested in social movements and especially racial equality, to me, like many people, um, the intersections between how ordinary people on the job can fight for not only their own gains, but also for racial equality seemed, well, important. And so my original dissertation was about an interracial labor union in Philadelphia um, because I was interested in interracial unionism in an era, but for that matter, even today, where um, race, ethnicity, nationality, 
as well as things like sex, sexuality, and whatnot, can divide people. And so I happened to find a group of people who were part of an interracial union, which in the early 20th century was incredibly unusual. And they just happened to be Philadelphia dock workers. They just happened to be in the IWW. And so basically, I became fascinated with unions that fight for racial equality, and it was dock workers. And then subsequently, I became fascinated with dock workers. Um, no particular interest in this group of people prior. Um, one book on that subject might be enough, but it turns out that I thought two books. <laughs> um, and so, like, really my first book doesn't think deeply about um, maritime, uh, doesn't think deeply about really the global nature of shipping, the transnational nature of, of the industry. Um, it really thinks about it within the context of the city of Philadelphia and the United States. Um, however, that is evidence of my limited view at the time because I was writing about an industry that's global and an union that was global, the industrial workers of the world. Except that many of us, myself included, um, tried to put them into the box of the history of a single nation. Um, so I helped edit a volume, an anthology, that came out two years ago called Wobblies of the World because, well, that was a problem with the history of the IWW, like that we need to think about the IWW with global perspective. But no one had, literally. Um, and so that book has 20 chapters from 20 great scholars and activists from countries around the world who read and speak many languages because also many of us only studied the Ibidu with English language sources. So um, that anthology really has chapters on New Zealand, Spain, South Africa, Finland, not Finland, Sweden, um, other countries, Ireland, the US, Canada, Finnish people in Canada, etc. Um, so that was trying to do the IWDO justice. Um, I'm proud of that work that came out with Pluto Press a year and a half ago. Um, my own work on Durban and San Francisco was drawn to the idea that, okay, this union on the west coast of the U.S. is very internationalist and, well, actually speaking to Ryan's point, which I'm happy to talk further about, the U.S. and South Africa have a tremendous amount in common. Of course, they're different too, um, but really they're similar enough that you could do serious comparisons between the two. And I'm not the first. I mean, many have uh, both politics, literature, um, history, um, activists sort of appreciate those who visit one or the other. And this goes back 150 years. Um, literally, South African whites were modeling apartheid after Jim Crow segregation, um, yep. knowing this law. Um, and 
black South Africans were influenced by African Americans going back more than 100 years too. Um, and so I'm tilling a field that others have tilled before, um, although no one has ever written a book that's doing comparative labor, let alone Durban, San Francisco, let alone dock workers, um, uh, those sorts of matters. Um, and so that's a bit on my intellectual journey. Oh, great. That's a great setup. I appreciate that, Peter. That's very interesting. Um, Ryan's about to speak. Go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> oh, uh, well, um, I get, maybe this isn't the, the, the best place to start, but, but what, um, I don't know, immediately sort of, uh, jumps out at me from a like general interest perspective is the, um, incredible leverage that dock workers have, um, in the, in this, you know, the, the supposedly globalized economy, you know, where, where everyone, all workers are sort of like, like, uh, pictured as interchangeable widgets. Uh, but it turns out, you know, um, there are these sort of choke points as, as it were, where, where, uh, unions still survive even in the United States and have, have maintained a kind of radical tradition and, and have, and still to this day use that to, to, you know, even in, um, you know, for, for, uh, you know, wage goals or, or, uh, political goals. So, um, maybe if you could speak a little about, um, the position of the dock worker and, and, and how it's sort of evolved over time and been used. Of course, there is a big shift that happens in the 1960s, 1970s, where the entire industry transforms from manual labor to these cranes loading metal boxes, containers. But before and after, Ryan's point's appropriate. So it's no secret. Everybody's figures it out. Um, but we all know these phrases. The ship must sail on time. Time is money. That applies not only to shipping, but also other aspects of the transportation industry, which you might also call logistics, supply chain, etc. Um, so going back into the 1700s, London, greatest port in the world then. Um, sailors go on strike. What does that mean? they wanted a raise. They took down their sails, which is called striking a sail. And literally the word strike comes from that work stoppage, right? No and kidding. so the origins of the word strike is from maritime, which arguably is the first global industry of capitalism, right? I mean, agriculture, slave-based sugar production, etc., is maybe the second industry, right? But really shipping is. Fast forward to today, Shipping is still 90% of everything, as a book that came out a few years ago, is still delivered part of the way by ship. Not by transportation, but specifically ship. So um, even though containerization explodes um, trade in orders of magnitude and changes the work of those who move them, uh, those choke points exist. Um, and everybody knows it. Workers know it. Managers know it. Owners know it, right? Um, so the question is, what do you do about uh, workers when they're organized in unions or even informally can exert tremendous leverage, especially in the, I'd say in the 21st century, 
with so-called just-in-time production, low inventory, in order to maintain higher profit, exists, right? So going back to the 1930s, when the West Coast U.S. Dock Union is born, or really in South Africa, because of apartheid, black workers were not legally allowed to strike and were not legally allowed to be in unions, but nevertheless organized so-called informally um, on the job. South African blacks often lived in so-called hostels, single-sex dorms um, near the, the port um, in an area in Durban called the Point. Um, there's no parallel on the American side. Workers were not housed in company housing like this is sort of in maybe coal mining, textiles, a few industries, not much. But um, whether you organize in a union or in other methods, um, workers have been able to stop work strategically and often with no advance notice in order to get a raise. Hire someone who you want to work with. Maybe they're in the union together. Fire someone you don't like. Get a manager laid off or a safer workplace. Or, less common, um, because you are in solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement. In solidarity with what's going on in another country um, as some sort of struggle, right? And so dock workers have exerted this power and continue to do so on occasion, um, both for their own material gains as well as less so for social justice, political, whether it's local, national, or global. Right. Yeah. That's great. You know, and, and that reminds me, as, and as a historian, you probably appreciate how understanding what gave power to workers and what was um, so powerful in achieving these forms of justice uh, that you write about is contextualized and situated in specific times and specific um, understandings of the fact that they were dock workers. But also being dock workers uh, leads me to, to read another important um, point that we can kind of take for, for today, which is uh, they're very cosmopolitan and aware of international issues and about the global economy because of the nature of their work. And, and, and I wonder if you'd speak a little about how that helped, uh, helped them in their achievements and maybe perhaps shaped their ideology as well. Yes. Cosmopolitanism is often attributed to middle or upper class people. But it's pretty clear that folks who work in shipping, both on ships, but also in ports, are very cosmopolitan. What does that mean? Well, they themselves travel. And I like to point out before the 20th century, even the mid 20th century, you didn't need a passport. It's actually harder to travel the world, regardless of wealth now, than it was 100 years ago. Um, it was easier because there was less state power. But sailors come off a ship. They come from the Philippines. They come from Japan. They come from China. They come from Australia. Harry Bridges, the leader of the West Coast dock workers in the US, is an Australian immigrant. Um, of course, many blue-collar workers are immigrants themselves. Children of immigrants come from immigrant communities. And then, you know, the cargoes. It's coming coffee from South America, um, copra, coconut meat from the Philippines, 
Um, every day, dock workers are meeting people from other countries and moving goods from around the world. Even if they've never gone to these other places, most Americans haven't anyway. Um, so too in Durban, right? They're interacting historically all the time with sailors from around the world. A lot of British um, merchant ships also employed Indians, South Asians a lot. Um, and so sailors of color around the world, what do they do when they get off to ships? They talk to the people they see. English, widely spoken in the Atlantic world, in the Indian Ocean world, even the Pacific. So what you've got is workers who, through their work, but also the cities they live in, port cities, um, are interacting all the time. So what does that mean? They're more international in their experience, in their ideas, in their worldviews, maybe, right? Uh, most of us think about our immediate lives and our maybe home countries, but a lot, not all, uh, think in international ways. So for instance, they know what's going on in other countries. They care sometimes about what's happening to people in other countries, fellow workers, same industry in other countries. And of course, some who also have politics, many of us are apolitical, but many are political, um, especially left-wing ideologies, which are more internationalist. You've got all the makings for why Dockers are very internationalist um, in their thinking, in their unions, and sometimes in their transnational solidarity actions. Mm, interesting. And, and would you say, so I, I you know, in reading about um, Local 10, right, and, and it seems like in three decades, it, it goes from 99% um, white to majority African-American. And can you tell us a bit about what motivated those white workers and how their interest, uh, you know, did the socialism come first? And, and then like what, what led to the, what was the impetus for the drive to, to kind of pursue uh, racial diversity, racial justice in their own workers? So San Francisco, later Oakland, but San Francisco Bay Area used to be San Francisco. Now Oakland is the major port. From the 1840s into the 1970s, San Francisco is the number one port on the U.S. West Coast. Now it's L.A. Um, but my work really runs through the 80s for the most part, um, from the 30s. So in the 1930s, San Francisco and Oakland have almost no black people. Most people would be surprised. It's diverse in terms of its European heritages. And there are some Asians, some Latinos, not many. So when I say 99% white, that's not exaggeration. Um, but they're Irish, Italian, German, Scandinavian, etc. So this union born in the 30s, and this union is left wing from its start. Its leaders, Harry Bridges, but also other leaders in San Francisco, which is the headquarters for the whole coast, as well as being the busiest port and therefore the biggest um, local, thousands of men, and many of the rank and file, also left-wing. Harry Bridges 
comes out of the rank and file. He wasn't the leader when 1934's big strike began. He emerges out of that as a leader that people embrace. And to this day, decades after his death, if you say Harry, not Harry Bridges, to dock workers, they know it's Harry Bridges. Right? Wow. So Amazing. Bridges was already political because he was a sailor. His uncle was political and he had experienced the world. He had traveled to India. He had traveled to China. Later, he moves in the early 20s to San Francisco. But he leaves San Francisco. He, member, he joins the IWO in New Orleans. Later moves back to San Francisco. Probably is starting to interact with communists by the late 20s, early 30s. Is he a communist? One of the great debates? I don't know, personally. Um, he said he wasn't, but that he agreed with 99% of, or 95% of communist ideology, whatever. Um, but the West Coast also has still active wobblies, Trotskyists, communists, a variety of left ideologies, and they bring this into their union in the late 30s so that before there are many blacks, there are some, but not many, they already are committing themselves to being anti-racist. Some of that is pragmatic. They don't want black workers to scab. However, that alone is not enough because pragmatism doesn't explain why most white workers don't accept that, right? It's always pragmatic to be anti-racist because you're stronger. But most white <laughs> right. workers have failed. Because that. That, that could almost lead to kind of like the Conrad Friedersdorf or, uh, you know, libertarian, look, capitalism will solve racism. I mean, I, I guess the Civil Rights Act was okay, but really the invisible hand will make sure that we have, uh, you know, no separation of blacks and whites at the, at the uh, you know, uh, restaurant up by the side of the road because that would lower that would lower profits <laughs> yeah exactly of course employers have played ethnic and racial groups off each other in america up to this day yeah um, and the state in the form of president trump obviously um, so what you've got is ideology and pragmatism both this is the same story i argue on the philadelphia waterfront in the 19 teens why does this a big port become super diverse and inclusive and egalitarian with black leadership, Ben Fletcher in Philadelphia. So in the U.S., 30s, so few blacks, but an anti-racist union. What happens during World War II? Great migration due to labor shortage. Suddenly tens of thousands, maybe a few hundred thousand African-Americans move into the California, north and south. Some of those end up on the docks during the war. However, after the war, this union remains committed to keeping all these black guys in their union, even though the work has decreased because after the war there's a, a slump in shipping. And that's, again, ideology, you know, because it would have been easier to kick out the blacks who are competing for jobs. Instead... What the IWW, excuse me, the ILW does is low man out. If you show up to the dispatch hall that day, whoever has the least amount of work in the last quarter of the year 
gets first dibs on a job. So the last shall be first. Very Christian, socialist, but also very socialist. So they institute a pragmatic way to equalize work, regardless of race, starting in the late 30s, continues onward. And then as the union grows in the 50s and 60s, retirements, whatnot, some change in the workforce, over time, Local 10 becomes more and more black. And it's that way to this day. Now, it's important to know, this is the only black majority local in the LWU. Other ports are, have blacks. Some have better records than others when it comes to the commitment to equality. But Local 10 was and remains a, a standout in terms of racial ex- inclusion. Um, but local, say, 13, L.A., Long Beach, which now is much bigger and more important, is also diverse. But L.A. is different. So more Latinos, a lot more Mexican-Americans, um, some Asian-Americans, um, fewer blacks. L.A. has fewer blacks. Um, and there's more to the story there. Um, so that's on the Durban side. It's an all-black war for us. Um, segregation by job was the law up through 1994. So dock workers in Durban, all black, although most are Zulu and some are Pando, which is a group of people who live in the Eastern Cape, which is near KwaZulu-Natal, but speak Kosa. And so on the Durban side, all quote unquote black, but actually of two different ethnic groups. Um, Durban is also known for its huge Indian population, but because of segregation by law, again, there was not a mixing of Asian and African on any job, pre-94. And that's actually remained mostly the case. So Durban dockers are all black. Yeah. Um, that, that, um perhaps raises a good uh, good follow-up question which is uh <clears throat> um these the the longshore unions in the in the US were were key to um pushing for uh international action against apartheid correct and and so how did that like how did those um those, those linkages and that sort of inter, the international solidarity emerge was it um, people was it sort of like the 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 ideology of apartheid itself or something to do with the the, the black unions in Durban specifically or something else so in terms of the global movement against apartheid I've written a lot about the Bay Area what you've got by the 60s, is a lot of African-Americans, they're actually fighting for civil rights in the city and the country, but some of them are what we call Pan-African. They see black issues globally as important, solidarity with African liberation struggles, and this goes back earlier, but um, in the 60s, we start to see in San Francisco a stop work technically not a strike, respecting a picket thrown up by civil, um, civic community organizations that are anti-apartheid, 
but with coordination from the union members so that they throw up a tiny picket at a pier where South African cargo comes in on a Dutch ship and they don't work that ship. Um, you might call that a strike, but technically it's not. Um, that happens again in the 70s a number of times and then in 84 for 10 days, sort of during the height of the U.S. global anti-apartheid movement. Um, the leaders are a combination of black and white local 10 rank and file members, but led by a guy named Leo Robinson, who was an African-American, second generation dock worker, communist, former communist, but very much uh, pan-Africanist, helps to start the Southern Africa Liberation Support Committee. This union votes to create a committee committed to liberation struggles across Southern Africa, um, Mozambique, uh, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, South Africa in the 70s, post Soweto uprising in 1976 in students. So what you've got is um, left-wing blacks and left-wing whites of that generation who were also supportive of global liberation in the so-called third world. So in what you've got there is not all dock workers, but the dock workers in the Bay Area, right? Um, they were very active for decades, but not all dock workers in New York, LA, New Orleans, whatever, some. In Durban, you've got local. Durban dock workers are working, well, all the time, but occasionally stop work or, quote, stay away, as legally they cannot strike, to protest apartheid and coordinate with anti-apartheid groups in the 50s. And that including was uh, with a group called SACTU, the South African Congress of Trade Unions, which was sort of like a sister organization to the ANC that was later destroyed by repression. So in Durban, they are anti-apartheid, but of course you might see it as more likely because they themselves are the victims of apartheid, right? Um, there are no connections between Durban specifically and San Francisco workers in that era. Fast forward to the 21st century, well, both of these unions, now dock workers in Durban are part of a South African dock worker union, are part of an international transport worker federation, not just shippers, uh, sailors, dock workers. So they all know each other now. They meet at conferences. They communicate and give each other praise for these sorts of actions. But that's a recent phenomena post-apartheid. Yeah. Interesting. I have so many thoughts because I, I want to see if we can think about lessons from uh, all of this wonderful research and, and all these stories of struggle and, and um, an increase in, in wages and, and social justice, racial diversity for the era of Trump, because I, I'm making connections in terms of how neoliberalism today uh, and, and kind of uh, right wing nationalism are, are working together to um, not let people move, you know, like to have borders secure, right? So to keep people from being cosmopolitan, from meeting each other, uh, while at the same time 
boosting nationalism to, instead of internationalism, right? I'm thinking about what was successful for the left, right? You have internationalism, you have awareness, you have movement and cosmopolitanism, you have a linking of uh, diverse people's interests and, and unifying worker interests across, um, you know, ethnic lines, across national lines. Uh, could, could you think through a little bit about these, these questions today about the divide and conquer that, that Trump and others do uh, racially, but also in terms of, of border? and how the left can learn some lessons politically today? What, what, what comes to mind when you're thinking about all the, all the lessons you've learned from your work? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You can, no that, was more, that was more like just start wherever you want with that. I was just kind of thinking lots of connections. Of and, and you can, yeah. So not all dock workers are internationalist, activist, left-wingers. Some dock workers are. Any movement only needs some. Most of us watch TV, sit on the sidelines, are busy, are overwhelmed. Do a, pod- do a podcast. Do yeah. a podcast, are apathetic, are tired, are oppressed, right? Um, any social movement, past or present, you only need a, a, a group of militants, right? Which labor folks might call a militant minority. So, so too today. There are dock workers, part of this in- tremendous union with this incredible legacy in the Bay Area, who are getting paid well, six figures, some, maybe many, who don't give a crap about what happens in South Africa, Honduras, whatever, right? Um, But there are still some, and they continue to pull actions that do provide lessons for the age of Trump and the age of right-wing populism globally. So, for instance, 2015, May Day, International Worker Day, but not in the U.S. What what dock workers do in the Bay Area? Led by a black woman named Stacey Rogers, who's in Local 10, they organize a stop work. Technically, the West Coast dock workers have in their contract the right to stop work during a shift to have a meeting. Now, generally, those meetings are short and not during the day and not political in nature. However, it doesn't specify. So they have a stop work meeting for a whole eight-hour shift on May Day to talk about racist police brutality because in 2015, there was a big case where in South Carolina, a white cop shot and killed a black guy running away from him but lied, said he shot the guy in self-defense. That guy happened to be the brother of a dock worker in Charleston, South Carolina. And so they said, in solidarity with one of our brothers in another port, we're going to stop work. And we've also had racist cop killings in the Bay Area. Oscar Grant, the famous case where on New Year's Eve, a transit police officer killed a black man who was you know, in um, cuffs with his face down on the ground and this guy pulled out his gun and put a gun and shot this guy cold blood, but got off, right? And so they stopped work in 2015 to protest police racism, yeah? Also in 2017, well, a sort of neo-fascist group wants to organize a rally in San Francisco. This is August, 2017. A lot of groups in the Bay Area were organizing counter-protests. 
but the local 10 was part of that. They essentially led one group that was going to be present at Alamo Square where the rally was originally called for, but then canceled because of the massive organizing. And so, again, not all, but a core group in Local 10 organized on anti-fascist activism with lots of other groups in the Bay Area, which is interesting too, because generally unions don't coordinate well with other civic organizations, but they can. Um, and so those are two examples of what might be done practically, because although the internet is great and podcasts are great, you know, we still need boots on the ground. We need people organizing face-to-face in their communities. And so sometimes the Local 10 is continuing to do that. And I'd like to point out that actually one of the activists in Local 10 who organized that 2017 effort, that anti-fascist one, just was elected to the fourth highest position in the international of the ILW. So that guy has gone from Local 10 to the international level in his union, where presumably he's going to continue to bring some of that politics. Um, And the union is still based in San Francisco, even though L.A. is now bigger, right? Their headquarters remains. Um, So he's a local who happens to also now be at the international, so-called. And that union now has organized not only in British Columbia, has for decades, but a few years ago, organized the dock workers of Panama, which is a, sort of a very unusual and new, um, and Panama's important because of the Panama Canal, right? So yeah. you've got this interesting Pacific-wide, they also have Hawaii, right? Um, so they've got, I mean, U.S., a bit of Canada, Panama, because U.S. international unions often means U.S.-Canada. It is yeah. binational but like international, as they call themselves often. But the LWU has actually done something very recently that's also new-ish. Yeah, this, um, and unions across nations is tricky because labor law varies by country, right? And so sure, corporations sure. can move all over the place, but labor law is nation-specific. Yeah, so that's interesting too. So what might be done with that growing network? Well, I guess we'll see. But there is definitely potential. Um, so too in Durban, where South Africans, for instance, are very interested in Palestine. They're mm. time and again make the, the connection between the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank with their own historic mistreatment. Although the term apartheid is sometimes divisive and a lot of people sympathetic to Israel point to the Differences between Palestinians and South Africans traditionally, it's appropriate that many South Africans do make that connection and have repeatedly protested Israeli ships that land in or dock in Durban. And so there are various issues that workers around the world are interested in and can act upon based upon their choke point, but also their politics. Wonderful. That's great. I, um, <clears throat> I thought, you know, it, it may be worth pulling out, um, um, the, 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 
specific kind of like the nature of 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 mass shipping these days you know i think that people like it's also obscured from day-to-day experience you know people think it's it's like oh you you click a button on amazon and the thing just shows up at your house and it's like there's this this it seems as though at least in my head there's there's like an kind of omnipotent logistics this machine that just happens and there's no you know wait and there's no way that you know anybody could ever ever sort of disrupt it because it's so big but the fact of the matter is that you know there there's these goods being transported all over the globe and a lot of them come in these enormous container ships right they're like a hundred thousand tons or something you know like like or even larger and there's only so many places they can go and uh if they can't unload their stuff at one of these ports through the very you know the the like two or three spots where they can get, then they're just out of luck. And so the leverage it really is enormous. And you you talk about um, in, a, in a, one of your papers uh, how this happened to a shipment of weapons from China, right, in the, in the South African ports. Could you, could you tell us about that, uh, that story? Of course. So a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So although those chains are real, as in the supply chain, if there's a weak link, which is another way of saying if workers are strong, that's important to appreciate, yeah? So as far as the invisibility, Ryan's point is well said, there's a great documentary that came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago called The Forgotten Space. It's about the sea. The, the, the seven seas. And it's by this artist named Alan Sekula and Noel Birch. And I recommend the film. It really deals with globalization, corporate driven, and the impacts on people, workers, sailors, factory workers. Because of course, another part of this is that containerization resulted in the movement of manufacturing around the world from so-called first world to second and third world countries but especially now from North America to China, for instance. So China, an important player now in the world, they are um, very involved across Africa, as many of us read about. For instance, I just was reading about how a Chinese shipping corporation might take ownership of Mombasa, the port of Mombasa, which is the largest port in East Africa, in Kenya, because, well, they've loaned money, and then you get sucked into this debt, and then if you can't pay off your debt, then you lose the asset. Piraeus, the port of Athens, the port of Greece, already is owned by the Chinese, right? Um, by a Chinese company, right? And so for Europeans, they're also thinking about this, and the, the so-called privatization of ports, which in many countries are actually publicly owned, not in America, although it varies, but in many countries. So Piraeus, for instance, has been privatized um, in a way that has benefited China. But China's also making inroads across East Africa, Mombasa being the first. Durban, which is actually the biggest port, busiest port in all of sub-Saharan Africa. Tangier in North Africa might be busier. It's a so-called transshipment port. Cargo comes in and out without it being the destination of North Africa, right? Right. Um, 
So Durban is historically, but still to this day, really important in the Southern Hemisphere and in Africa. Dock workers in 2008 refused to work a ship from China, which is loaded with weapons and ammunition, for Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is to the north of South Africa, but landlocked, no port. All goods that are shipped in and out of Zimbabwe that go by sea go through either Mozambique or South Africa, more typically South Africa. Durban's bigger than Maputo. So 2008, there is a violent election cycle happening in Zimbabwe. Robert Mugabe, no longer the president, like a year ago, he stepped down after almost 40 years, um, sort of forced out, but was being challenged by a labor leader in Zimbabwe in their elections and probably won the first round, the opposition. But through violence of the military and the police, killing hundreds of people, injuring thousands, torturing many, including beating up the man who was run against Muzagabe, a guy named Morgan Zangarai, who was a union leader, right? This is happening. Zimbabwe, South Africa, it's like Mexico, US. Neighbors, one country is richer than the other. There's a lot of migrants from the poorer country into the richer. And also, like the US and Mexico, long-standing geographic, cultural, personal connections. So there's millions of Zimbabweans in South Africa. But there's also South Africans, historically, who are Zimbabweans now, going back to the 18th century, where uh, Zulus moved northward. Um, they're a group called the Indembele in Zimbabwe now. They're basically Zulus. Anyway, Zimbabwe also was very supportive of the anti-apartheid movement in the 80s especially, and Mugabe was supportive. So you've got this country that is historically closely tied to South Africa, where the blacks in both countries have a lot of connections for many reasons, political, cultural, other. And a lot of South Africans are caring about and supportive of the opposition, especially the labor movement in South Africa is supportive of the Zimbabwean labor movement. And they're saying, these weapons, literally, if we unload them, will kill fellow workers in Zimbabwe and oppose the use of force by Mugabe against the democratic opposition. So they refuse to work the ship. The ship is un not unloaded. It leaves. It tries to unload in Mozambique, and then also possibly on the west side in Angola, but dock workers in both those countries also refuse with the support of the Durban dock workers. And so what happens is, this is another example of a transnational action of dock workers, politically motivated, that has some real force. It's not just symbolic. Mugabe holds on to power, so it actually doesn't result in Sangarai getting elected. Um, but it's a really interesting example of how dock workers, but more generally workers, um, can exert leverage on their own governments and even on foreign governments. Um, and the Bay Area dock workers have engaged in a long history of this. I could write a book on just that, although I wrote just a chapter on their anti-apartheid activism. They have past and present been interested in um, the Japanese invasion of China in the 30s, um, the Ethiopian 
um, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in the 30s. The Durban guys were interested in that. Um, you know, in the more recent 20th century, El Salvador, Chile, the Philippines, South Korea. It's sort of amazing. Um, it's also amazing that a small group of workers can organize in such a way and really exert leverage. No, that's, that is amazing. And, and it does show not just how it's in the strategic interest of workers to try to think internationally and understand uh, these complexities, but the, the obstacles really are global in nature. You know, you made me think when you brought up Piraeus, right, which I'm Greek, right? So uh, Piraeus has been, or was at least, um, a Greek harbor going back to the 5th century BC, and the reason that it got privatized is linked to the way that the EU enforced austerity measures, enforced uh, as condition on the $100 billion bailout in 2015, right? They forced the Greeks to privatize certain state-owned entities, including the port. So, so even that is linked to another neoliberal, um, you know, <laughs> um, terror uh, of oppression. And so all these things are linked. It's just so interesting how the problems and the solutions um, kind of are just flip sides of each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree 100%. Um, you know, I, I don't know what you thought, Ryan, but I, I wanted to, to come, come back to race and economics just in, in, sure. in a time of Trump. And, and, and Peter, you wrote on Martin Luther King Day about uh, MLK, right, and, and, and Local 10 and uh, so many things, even just within the left, whether it's Bernie Sanders uh, or this issue of why, you know, whether we should, as the left, reach out to people who voted for Trump, white working class, all these things. Cert certain voters had Trump and Bernie uh, one and two, one way or the other. Uh, and so I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on how to think through this relationship between racial justice and economic justice, uh, and then maybe even electoral politics, even though we've been focusing on, on activism so far. Um, what, what, what comes to mind when thinking through these things? Yeah. yeah. Well, the famous quote from Martin Luther King, what good is it to sit at the lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? Of course, I'm a vegetarian, but I get it. Um, so, veggie burger. Yeah, veggie burger, exactly. Um, so dockers are a small group of workers, but there are many, many of us who work in other industries who need to be thinking in the same sorts of ways. Now, the Bayer dock workers made Martin Luther King an honorary member in 1967 when King was in the Bay Area um, along with Harry Belafonte and others doing a tour. And King spoke at Local Tens Hall in San Francisco because he's like, what you've been doing are the sorts of things that I'm also supporting in other places. As many of us know, a year later, he'll be killed in Memphis, Tennessee, while helping to organize a union. So, you know, the idea that what's the goal? Is the goal racial equality? Yes. But what does racial equality mean if there's still pervasive economic inequality? If blacks are poor disproportionately, if black wealth is a, a fraction of typical white wealth, well, that doesn't seem very equal. And lots of people understand this. In addition to King, famously, the African-American activist Baird Rustin, who literally was the main organizer of the March on Washington, but who was really a labor guy, who was King's lieutenant, 
and connection to the labor movement, AFL-CIO, UAW, etc. AFSME. And so what you've got is for us today, well, yeah, we're fighting for equality against racism, against sexism, against homophobia. And part of that means we want to make sure people have the same job opportunities, get the same pay for the same work, have the same opportunities for promotion, have the same power to be hired, to have power in their workplaces, etc. Um, it's not just about um, civil rights, it's bigger, right? Um, and so I think the same issues exist in many countries in South Africa, as Ryan oh, knows. Boy. The great tragedy of the post-apartheid era is that most blacks are materially as poor as they were before the end of apartheid. And yeah. there's tremendous racial wealth inequality, period. It's actually bigger now than it was uh, in 1994 before apartheid ended, the black-white mm -hmm. wealth gap. Yeah. In Some South blacks Africa. in South Africa have elevated into the middle and upper classes, as well as the political class, but the majority of blacks are poor. And there's also pervasive segregation residentially in particular. Yeah. And so for all the incredible victories, it's really obvious how much still has to be won. Now in America, you can make the same. It's less awful. Um, blacks in America have it less worse off, I think, than in South Africa. But, you know, the inequality is real. I live part of the time in Chicago. Let me tell you about Chicago. Take a train from the north side to the south side, and you will watch as the racial demographics of the trains change based on who lives in these neighborhoods. I spend a lot of time on the south side, which is sort of coded black, although lots of whites live there too. And it's, I'm walking down the street, I'm on the bus, I'm on the train, I'm the only white guy for miles, right? Um, in the greatest country in the world, where the civil rights movement won 50 years ago, right? Um, and so it's easy to be cynical in both US and South Africa about what has been won. And it's also easy to sort of drop our lists of what still needs to be won, including really targeting poverty and economic suffering because so many black and brown people in the US um, have not benefited from the, the economics so-called prosperity, whether it's the stock market, home ownership, et cetera, right? Unions, I would say, are still the greatest pathway to making more money. And so forget about the revolution. Let's be less poor. And so I think that's why blacks are still more likely to be in union than whites and also be pro-union. That's why, say, these teacher strikes in Chicago, L.A., other places have the support of black community and brown communities. It's because they know that these people don't get paid much, but also that unions actually um, result in people earning more money. And do you want the rich to have more money or the rest of us to have more money? It's, it's sort of simple. That makes sense. Yeah. Do, 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 you, do you think then, well, just as you watch, I don't know if you, how much you pay attention to uh, electoral politics in the, in the 2020 primary already launching for the Democrats. Um, 
Any words of wisdom as people look at candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris as against, you know, white politicians like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and thinking about uh, what actually helps advance racial justice? Well, that's a good question. And I do try to pay attention. And I've tried to not read the hit pieces that already are coming out on everybody (laughs) because I don't see that as helpful. But I understand why maybe we're eating each other. But, you know, if a candidate is basically in the pocket of big pharma, well, that's not someone who I think represents my interests or the interests of ordinary people. If a candidate has had a history of prosecuting poor people, well, that gives me pause, right? And so, although, and I think because of Obama, it's not, whoever's the next non-white candidate isn't just gonna get a pass the way that Obama sort of did by many people, black and non-black people. So I don't know what'll happen. I don't yet have a strong personal favorite. Um, I appreciate that for many decades, Bernie Sanders has been fighting for working people, is very pro-union, but going back to his personal student days in the early 60s in Chicago, was participating in direct action civil rights protests. He has bona fides, in my opinion. And I appreciate also that Cory Booker has done some really good things. I like that he, uh, you know, what, ran into a burning building and tried to help someone out, <laughs> right? I, I, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's a right. sort of good person. Um, I just don't know about his politics enough yet. Jersey is actually, has a larger union density in most states. So does California. And so both Harris and Booker actually have some support among unions. And I've even seen photographs of Kamala Harris when she was, what the term is, state attorney general or something, um, where she's been with the dock workers that I study. Right. Um, And so I don't know what's going to how that's going to play. None of us do. But I mean, that'll be an important issue for me. Like, you know, how pro-union are these candidates? And I think we should all have that on our short list of why we prefer candidate one to candidate two. Yeah. There's um, uh. There is, a, you know, the, this argument I've seen a bunch of times, which, you know, sort of trying to make excuses for people having bad records by by postulating that, like, you can't succeed as a as a, uh, you know, minority or a woman unless you are, uh, you know, more neoliberal than the neoliberals. You know, you, you have to sort of make that compromise to succeed. And, you know, the the. The implication of that argument is that, like, if you want good policy, you have to elect only white men. But I think more more interesting than that, which I think is clearly something that's just like a like a instinctive reverse engineered argument, um, is considering the candidacy of Jesse Jackson in 1988 um, with his Rainbow Coalition, which is, uh, you know, he's a black guy, obviously, good friend of Martin Luther King, and he is doing almost to exactly the uh, the um, 
type of campaign that 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 Sanders and and people like Sanders are running. You know, it was like he wanted to do uh, WPA style employment. You know, cut back the war on drugs, raise taxes on the rich. He was big anti-apartheid guy, and um, you know, it was basically like Roosevelt's New Deal without the racism. You know, plus civil rights and and and. Um, was watching a pretty a pretty interesting little interview of Bernie in 1988 when he was like Jesse Jackson is our man we're going with the Democrats for this time like I'm gonna hold my nose and 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 support Jackson because he's doing the right thing so it's like the 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 tradition is just right there you know and it is very uh, multi ethnic you know it's it's not it's not the case that that all the black people have to be you know ball busting prosecutors or whatever. Well, look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the most popular yeah. politician, uh, I mean, at least from anecdotal evidence in, <laughs> in, uh, in a long, long time, is a young woman of color. And gr- granted, she has a lot of talent and charisma and intelligence, but I think there's something also in the truth of the message and the principles that make it easier, actually, to use those talents because... I don't know. You don't have to lie through your teeth like neoliberals do. (laughs) There are plenty of examples of progressive people of color running for office, right? So hopefully it doesn't come down to these sorts of issues. My first political speech that I attended was 1988, watching Jesse Jackson on my college campus in New York City. And I was blown away. I didn't know anything about him. I mean, I knew the stereotypes about Jackson. But I was apolitical as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old. And I'm like, when he was keeping hope alive, if he was on the ballot in 2020, okay. Um, I gather he's not well these days. I think he has Parkinson's. But like, a, you know, a Jackson-style candidacy, 88 was not the right time. 2020, yeah. actually, I think very possibly could be the right time. And I guess we'll see who you know, runs the best campaign or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Peter, do you have any uh, final things that you, you'd like to, to discuss before, before we wrap up anything we haven't touched on? This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You know, my book covers many of the issues that both of you have probed really thoughtfully over this hour or so. The only thing I'd say is I wrote my book when I started It was my interest in the anti-racism and my interest in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and globally and how dock workers had played roles in that. But as I was researching my book, I kept on running into the issue of containerization. And so it's a, we could talk for hours, but these workers experienced a massive technological change that decreased their numbers, did not ultimately destroy their organizations, and they've rebounded somewhat. They're weaker in some ways. Uh, But the issue of technology is one of the most important of the 21st century. Whatever work we do, white collar, blue collar, pick the work, pick the country. So one-third of my books, one of the three themes, deals with the technological change, what I call a revolution, and I try not to use that word too much, but containerization did result in a revolution. Um, the world we live in now 
is not just because of text messaging and smartphones. Um, so we didn't talk about that, can't do everything. But my book also deals with this because uh, the San Francisco Bay Area was the first port, one of the first ports, and the union that represented them was the first union to negotiate this transition. And that's really interesting and important and relevant today. And so uh, I didn't come off trying to do a book on technology and work, but I ended up writing a book that includes a lot on those matters because they do matter. And so um, in addition to these themes we've talked about today, um, especially focusing on interconnections between race and unions um, and transnational activism, the container stuff is surprisingly interesting, even though the word itself bet. is like once <laughs> you don't want to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's really interesting. I think we have a few more minutes to talk about it if you like. I mean, uh, technology and people have different ideas about generally how workers uh, in, you know, I don't know if you want to call it late capitalism, neoliberalism today, uh, will be continually affected by automation, other types of advances. And, and this leads to many different wonks like Ryan uh, trying to think of ways to, um, you know, beyond unions, even adding to the power and leverage of workers, whether it's a universal basic income, a job guarantee, federal job guarantee, various ways to try to anticipate how these technological changes will change the power dynamics. Do, do you have thoughts about the lessons you've learned from studying uh, the obstacles that technology brought with the containers uh, to today and going forward, just Broadly speaking, uh, what types of things would you think we should, as as the left, uh, think about uh, advancing to try to uh, balance the power going forward? Well, as a fan also of science fiction, I think it's all about who controls it. Technology is good, in most of our opinions, except when we enter the workplace. But how many of us want to go back to a pre-internet age? Well, none of us, probably. Um, how many of us don't use our GPS when we're driving or walking or whatever? I mean, there are many benefits. And for Harry Bridges and many dock workers, the idea that the work would be less dangerous and less difficult, that sounds good. But the problem is, of course, if you don't have a job, well, I'm glad if the other guy isn't going to get hurt on the job as easily, but I don't have a job. And also, who profits from these technological changes? Those are the core issues. And until workers have enough power, or states exert power on behalf of workers instead of letting companies get the lion's share of the benefits, well then, workers are understandably going to be fearful of and opposed to technological change. But I can see a world, if I close my eyes and dream in the future, where technology is labor-saving. Why not? We work fewer hours. The great tragedy is that we work as many hours now, even though we have all these technologies. So what's happened is, is that productivity has increased, profits increase for shipping corporations, some of that goes to the workers because the unions were strong enough to command a bit of that, but they could get all of it, right? Uh, and so I don't want to be anti-tech, although I, 
understand, including in my own work, professors are at risk of being dis, you know, fired because of internet classes or whatever. Um, I teach some of them. Uh, so, you know, every industry has the same issues. And the question is, are we going to have technology for the rest of us or just for the owners? Right. Um, and well, I know what I want. Uh, as for the Bay Area dock workers and the West Coast dock workers, they got a relatively good deal. In Durban, where the workers were not strong, 50% were laid off inside three years, and they didn't get a dime in more wages, right? And so they just suffered all the negatives, whereas the West Coast dock workers, including San Francisco, got some of the benefits, but not most, and not most of the money. And over time, there's fewer than 20% of the workers. Right. And so what do you do with that? Well, that's those are the issues. Right. Um, and then the question is, how much power do workers or their democratic institutions have to sort of really make it benefit the majority instead of just the few so that Amazon can deliver us by drone? Right. I mean, that's already happening. So if, what I'm hearing is if the workers of the world unite and seize the means of production, <laughs> then, then we could democratically decide how to, how to use uh, that production and uh, the te technology. <laughs> Pretty much. Yes. That's great. That's great. Cool. Brian, do you have anything? Uh, no, no. I'm, I think that's, that's exhausted all my thoughts. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Really, really uh, glad you came on and excited for you to write your next handful of books diving into <laughs> to these issues. So uh, looking forward to that. How, how can people uh, read your work if, uh, yeah. if they want to? Well, what, do you, what do you recommend? I recommend going to the publisher website, University of Illinois Press, um, where you can buy direct from them or Pluto Press for my other book on the Wobblies, that anthology. Um, Powell's Books in Portland also has an internet presence and is also its workers are members of the same union, the LWU. So if you want the convenience of the internet but don't want to order from Illinois, you could order from them. Of course, it's carried in many different ways on the internet. And um, if you want to just read short stuff and not buy a book, well, if you Google my name, you'll be able to find some essays I've written that are much shorter. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And I never asked this. What, could you define for everyone what a wobbly or what the wobblies are? Of course. So one of the great mysteries, if you're a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, your nickname is a wobbly, plural wobblies. No one knows, although there are stories. <laughs> no one definitively knows why, but going back to the early days, like the early 19-teens, already the term wobbly was associated with a member. And so the IWW website, because the wobblies are still around, they actually have a whole history on their page that I think is good. Some really smart, now deceased folklorists, one named Archie Green, have written thoughtful, long essays about how this term came to be applied to a member of this union. But uh, the, the most important thing is that if you hear a wobbly or wobblies, they are a fighting union and they've been around for 100 years and they are an anarchistic union, um, much more suspicious of state power. 
and the Wobblies are on the rise. Membership is growing. It's very small, but they've been organizing, and they just lined up a bunch of fast food workers in the Portland, Oregon area. The first time that a union has been able to unionize uh, a fast food chain, a small regional chain, um, Burgerville. Wow. Right. Wow. Wobblies, wobblies of the world unite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. They were the ones who developed the motto, an injury to one is an injury to all, that many unions, including both unions in the, my book, Doc Worker Power, adopted. And so it's the single most basic common sense working class mantra uh, still. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Sure, yeah. my pleasure too. The book is called back on. Uh, Dock Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban in the San Francisco Bay Area. Check Thank it you out. very much. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going.